Recorded at the Food About Town studio, this is the Black Button Podcast with owner Jason Barrett, brand ambassador Luke Thiers, and me, Chris Lindstrom, your host. In the first Black Button Podcast episode, we talked all about gin. We went through some of the history, how Black Button does their gin, and mainly we focused on the barrel-aged gin, and we got to sample a fantastic cocktail and take on the old-fashioned made by Luke right here at the studio. So I hope you enjoy the first episode. Check out Black Button at 85 Railroad Street, Tuesday through Saturday. Yeah. So welcome to episode one of the Black Button Podcast. So I've got two fine gentlemen from Black Button here. Why don't you say hello across the table? Well, I'm Jason Barrett, head distiller and founder of Black Button Distilling. And the man making all the clinking noises. And I am Luke Thiers. I am the national brand ambassador for Black Button Distilling. And I'm Chris Lindstrom, uh, host of the Food About Town podcast and sort of your moderator for the Black Button Podcast as well. So, gentlemen, thanks for stopping by. This is uh, this is exciting. I'm really uh, excited to talk about Black Button Spirits. And what are we talking about today, guys? We're going to talk gin, uh, specifically our barrel-aged gin. Yeah. So, this a little Dutch courage. Oh, is, is that is that one of the nicknames for it? That is one of yes. its original names. Yes. So you mentioned Dutch, and I'm assuming it kind of has a bit of a Dutch heritage to it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's I always like to say you can't talk about gin without talking about Geneva. Or Genevieve, or uh, however you want to say it. I'm not Dutch, so I'm never going to get it right. So how how do we how do we spell that? Uh, so the the <laughs> about six different ways. Yes, <laughs> the the common modern spelling is G E N E V E R. Okay. Um, and let's go with that. Okay, because yeah. I think I've I've seen like an A and an E and and a J and a oh, there's J you, J's are confusing. Yeah, that that's that's closer to the original spelling. Um, it actually comes from the f- old French word Genevra. Uh, okay. which uh, is in turn an alteration of the Latin juniperus. So you can start to see, see where that came from. I see yeah. where we're going here. Yeah. So after a few drinks, people just can't get it right, and they shortened it to gin. I, th- it's, yeah. I, I think that's very reasonable. <laughs> the There's the, so many fewer letters. The English are known for some efficiencies, uh, especially in language. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're going to leave that there, yeah. and let's yeah. let's talk about more of the history of gin. Yeah, uh, well, again... Uh, the, the roots of gin, the origin of gin, always go back to Geneva. Right. Um, so, so what is Geneva? Uh, it is a, a, a Dutch spirit um, that was made from usually 15 to 50% malt wine. Uh, that's a very large range, uh, but this is an old spirit. So there's going to be uh, a lot of differences in how it was made. The rest of that was typically uh, grain-neutral spirit, uh, commonly what vodka is made with today. Uh, and then there was the uh, addition of juniper, of course. Uh, some other herbs, uh, aniseed was a very popular one, cardamom was now known to be used now and again, and sugar, which is a little bit unusual. You don't expect to hear that. So it was kind of more of a liqueur at the time? Um, it could be thought of that way. I mean, in some ways, they were just using these things trying to cover up really cheap alcohol. Yeah. I mean, if, if, you, if you put yourself into the 15th century, 16th century, um, you know, they've developed a very ineffective uh, predecessor of a vodka still called a coffee still. And uh, and life is hard. I mean, you you live in a hut. 
your wife is ugly, you are plowing a field by hand. Like, all you want to do is go to bed, except your bed is made of straw and probably stone. Yeah. So you go down to the town pub, you've been drinking this beer or ale all this time, and someone shows you this incredibly strong liquid. Uh, and, and you know, a lot, of, a lot of drinking is a history of people just trying to escape a shitty, shitty situation which we would call, you know, medieval times. Yeah, it, do, um, it doesn't sound super in... I mean, I'd go as far as to say it wasn't particularly enlightened. Not really, no. Life, life was pretty tough. And, uh, and at the time, what was interesting, I mean, today when you go to a restaurant or a bar, they have glassware, they have a plate, they have forks and knives, and that's the exact opposite of what it was in the medieval like times. When you showed up at a tavern, you brought your own plate, your own knife, your own fork, and your own tankard. Well, these tankards were made out of water buffalo horn or carved out of oak. I mean, they were they were big monstrosity, you know, twenty ounce, you know, steins, if you will. It does sound pretty awesome, though. Yes, I really want to roll into a place in Rochester with a carved out water buffalo horn. You can come by Black Button anytime. With your yeah, <laughs> just go ahead and do that. Don't yes. <laughs> don't wait. Hey, for bring it back, there. Chris. Bring yeah. that back. Yeah, you got to bring it. It's got to start somewhere. I like it. But um, but when they, in- I mean, people were used to drinking beer. It was much safer than drinking water at that time, and uh, and so when gin came out, or when when you know high grade alcohol came out, uh, it was very cost effective, but it was pretty shitty stuff. So as they started to flavor it with these juniper and herbs and sugar to uh, to cover up some of the the bad problems, I mean, people would dip this 20-ounce tanker into this barrel of like 120, 130 proof gin. Wow. I mean, that's enough to kill a modern man. I mean, we're talking about like downing an entire bottle of gin and then going back for seconds. They were hardier in those days. Apparently. Yeah. 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 They also died a lot younger. Well, so. that they also did die on a regular basis. So yeah. ups and downs of being hardier back in the yeah. 1500s. So we had... Darwinism? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm not sure he got involved as much, right. at least at the time. Um, so we had Geneva, yep. which was your predecessor to gin. Obviously, I'm assuming it was everybody had their own recipe for it. There was, yeah, a lot of old recipes for it, uh, a lot of different date ways it was done. Um, there's actually two very prominent styles of it today, uh, Oud, Old Jennifer, and Young, Young Jennifer. Um, excuse my terrible accent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we can get more into that later. Uh, but even today, there's still two different defining styles of it because it was such a variant spirit. Cool. Um, but the really interesting part is it had to get to England somehow. Uh, it had to become gin somehow. So, so how did the English find out about Geneva? Why did they become enamored with it? Uh, it was actually the Holland's War of Independence in 1568. English sailors were sent over there to uh, help out, and they were given a shot of what they called a juniper-infused strong water uh, for, for a little bit of nerve before they went into battle. Um, and this is where we come up with the term, as you mentioned, Dutch courage. So they go back to England, and they're like, you got to try this Dutch courage. This stuff is amazing. So it's very integrated into English drinking. Uh, they already had spirits at that point, you know, French brandy, existed uh there's a few other spirits available um but this is much more cheaply produced so it became very integrated into english society very quickly especially the lower echelons of the society. well and, and actually the british military had a lot to do with that up until 1972 british sailors were paid a portion of their daily ration in either rum or gin depending on where they were sailing from hmm. and it had a lot to do with where they could get the stuff because they were making gin back in england itself rum in the colonies and so it tended to be that you got gin on the way to the Caribbean and rum on the way back. 
Uh, but it's also where we get our modern system of proofing uh, and mutinies. Ooh. Not I mean, to mention a... uh, some influence on barrel aging there as well. Yes. You know, yeah. That's... Although I imagine enough gin, you might want a mutiny. Yeah, and it probably Actually, it was happened. usually the lack of gin that caused Oh, that's, yeah, that's a good point. So if, if, they were water, if you were on a long voyage and the gin was starting to run out, they would start to water down the gin, oh. which in essence was cheating the men out of their pay. You know, that's not Navy strength anymore. Exactly. Right. Well, exactly. yeah, if it, wasn't, if it wasn't Navy strength anymore, the sailors uh, did have a tendency to get very upset and throw the quartermaster overboard. You know, and, and it's worth mentioning, we think of this as sort of an archaic old tradition, uh, giving sailors gin. I, I believe the English Navy stopped doing that in the late 70s. 1972. 1972. And uh, New Zealand was the last Navy to do it, and that was in the mid-90s. Uh, so this is actually a recent tradition as well. Nice. Go New Zealand. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so New Zealand has a Navy? It, apparently. Well, I mean, they, they do have a little bit of water around them. Eh, That's true. They're also <laughs> tiny. <laughs> I mean, that's like saying, like, Arkansas is going to mount a navy and, like, take over Mexico. Well, they, they do it's have like a... three speedboats and a pontoon boat. Like, <laughs> what are we talking? You have to go down the big river. It's not that's the size sense. of the navy. It's the size of the drink. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, right. But, yes, so that's that's essentially how Geneva uh, got brought to England. And England, as I mentioned, do their own thing with their, uh, their language. So that got shortened eventually to gin. Mm. Much easier to say. Nice. Um, but there's also another big world event that caused the introduction of Geneva and gin into English society, and that was a coronation of the Dutch-born William III, also known as William the Orange. Uh, so having a Dutch king, he obviously wanted his homeland spirit to very, be very popular in England, and that, that really helped push it into the, uh, into the zeitgeist, if you will. He also wanted his uh, nickname not to rhyme with anything, so... Yes, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that was, that was pretty creative of him. I'm not sure that was why he did it, but... I just assumed he was a big Syracuse fan. Yeah, but. obviously. Go Orange. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right, that's, that's kind of interesting. I mean, that's... I mean, it's obviously got a lot of historical ties to it, and, I mean, it's, it's kind of crossed over into America and it became popular, you know, recently, I guess, again, you know, it's always had a hook here, mm-hmm. you know, in martinis and other drinks, but more recently it's become popular again with different, uh, different formulations. And now as you, you kind of uh, mentioned, uh, getting back into kind of a classic thing, the barrel aged gins. Yeah. I think for a really long time, gin was just associated with old people. Yeah. And, you know, it smelled like your grandma's house. Um, and people weren't doing new and exciting things with it. And I don't know whether it was craft distilleries coming on the scene um, or just craft bartenders looking for a spirit with a little bit more something going on. But, you know, as America came out of the 90s and the vodka craze had started to, you know, had started to die down, um, I mean, one of the difficult things about being a new producer of spirits is, you know, Black Buzz... Button doesn't have any 18-year-old whiskey or 14-year-old whiskey or 6-year-old whiskey. It's really hard to do when you're only a 4-year-old company. Um, and that first year, you know, what do you do to keep the lights on that very first year? You know, vodka is a pretty boring spirit in and of itself. I know a lot of people drink it, but it's hard to differentiate with that. So the idea of these custom gins you know, and different directions of gins really started to take hold over the last 8 to 10 years. And one thing that I actually didn't realize for the longest time you know, Hendrix was founded in you know in this century. Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah, mm-hmm. it was like two thousand and four. It was a very new product. Wow. Yeah. I mean, they they really, I mean, they've designed themselves where it looks like a, 
It looks like a classic product. Yeah. Well, they were very smart with that steampunk branding. That yeah. <laughs> and hit the right and notes. those of us that are on the younger side, I mean, I was not, you know, I did not start my drinking, drinking career in the 90s legally. <laughs> um, you know, it, it seems like it's just always been there. But in reality, it's a very young product, very new. Potentially, it's part of what opened up the door of gin to new drinkers, new ideas, new ways of serving that cocktail. And it was just something different, but it also wasn't so different from the vodka craze of the 90s that people couldn't be you know, switched to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, it's... And then Black Button's done a lot of different varieties of gin, too. I mean, we've you've got... Three or four. Yeah, so I mean, you've got your, your classic citrus-forward gin. Mm-hmm. Which is product you have year round. Mm-hmm. And then you've done a couple seasonals too. So every spring we do a lilac gin uh, for the lilac festival here in Rochester, a great uh, homage to our hometown here. Uh, and then this uh, this past fall we started doing a um, a garden gin with the New York Wine and Culinary Center, uh, sort of a, a thought you know inspired by the the tastes of the garden that they have down there in Canandaigua. And then um, and then what came out this past October. Uh, what Luke is pouring for us currently is our barrel aged gin. So this is actually our citrus forward gin, um, put into a used bourbon barrel for ten months, and so it picks up that woody notes, those oak notes, um, you know, and it's really starting to blur that line between what is a whiskey and what is a gin. Absolutely, and that's that's something you know when we were talking before about about uh, Geneva, the way it's made, when you hear the malt wine, you hear the barrel aging, you think it's it's going to be almost like a whiskey and a gin. And that's that's the beauty of barrel-aged gin, is that it translates to whiskey cocktails and gin cocktails. I like to think of it as the best of both worlds. Yeah, because you can give a new dimension to your citrusy summer gin cocktail, exactly. or you can still play nice and dark and add a different dimension to you know, an old-fashioned or something like that. Exactly, exactly. So, I mean, where, what other directions do you take the barrel-aged gin? When you're thinking about how do, how do you use it other um, than that? Well, you know, we've spoken before, you know, I'm a big fan of, of uh, tropical and tiki drinks. Sure. Um, and there's a, there's a lot of classics that call for gin, and throwing a barrel-aged gin in there can make a really interesting drink. Uh, the first drink I made with the barrel-aged gin had Valencia orange, lemon, uh, honey, and pineapple. So not, awesome. not all the notes you would think for a gin, but it made a really bright, refreshing, very approachable drink that still had those kind of deep, oaky, whiskey notes to it. Interesting. I, I like that idea because it still plays. It still plays fun. It still plays tropical. But I mean, that's one of those things that people kind of forget about. Is you know, citrus and pineapple. Those things play really well with herbs. Mm-hmm. And something gin can offer is that contrast. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. And having the range of a barrel aged gin is really cool because you know a lot of times when you build a drink, you start with a classic, and this just gives you so many more to look at. You yeah. Know? Well, it's kind of, it's also a standing, it's a starting point is if you want to learn how to use it, try it in your favorite gin cocktail, try it in something you know, and see how you like it, see how it's different. How can you tweak it then? Exactly, exactly. I mean, I, I don't think there's a better place to start with barrel aged gin than a classic martini with yeah. just a little bit of bitters in there. Yeah, I mean, there's, I mean, so simple. And how else do you really experience the drink in a way you know really well? Yeah, exactly, exactly. There's going to be a connection to the past, familiar <laughs> flavors, but also new ones, and that's going to really tell you, like, where it's going. Yeah. So as we were starting the podcast today, uh, Luke was clinking some glasses there with uh, with my spoon. Uh, what, what are you working on? Uh, so it's funny you mentioned old-fashioned before. Uh, I'm going to make what's commonly referred to as a Dutch old-fashioned, uh, okay. which would be a gin old-fashioned. Um, and the barrel-aged gin, again, it's going to show how a 
classic whiskey cocktail will work with a barrel-aged gin, but in a different perspective. Uh, in order to change it up, uh, what I did, I used a little bit of uh, Demerara sugar, which is my favorite for, uh, for an old-fashioned. It's just a little bit richer. And then I used uh, the Fee Brothers Gin Barrel-Aged Orange Bitters, appropriately enough. Um, mm-hmm. Just a little bit more oak flavor to marry into there. I like that. Uh, and then just to, just to make it fun, I reached their Boker-style cardamom bitters as well. Uh, just to add some more interesting herbaceous notes in there. Yeah, cardamom is one of those flavors that is worth playing around with. It can be overpowering, but when it's not, when it's balanced really well, it just adds this certain something. It's hard to describe cardamom until you taste it. Exactly. Yeah, when it's used right, it's a very nice, subtle back note. Kind of like cloves. You know, if you use too many, it becomes really annoying, but a small amount just adds this little background note. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, clove is one of those ones where it's it's either just enough or way too much. Yeah. You know? So we're working on that. And um, what's what's your next step? So you started with the sugar at the bottom. Exactly. I get the sugar in the bottom first, um, and this is why you heard, heard me stirring so much, and I started them early. Uh, put some bitters in there and just a just a splash of water, okay. uh, and just stir that up until the sugar devolves. If you got a muddler at home, it's going to make it a little bit easier. You can crush the sugar up. Uh, but means to an end. You're dissolving the sugar in, into the drink. Nice. Um, and then uh, get about two ounces of barrel-aged gin in there. Don't worry about getting it perfect. You know, mm-hmm. If it tastes good to you, it's good. Uh, and then really simply just put some ice on top, give it another stir so it gets a little cold, and then I'm going to hit it with a little bit of orange oil on the top. Just cut off an orange uh, orange peel, spray that over the top. Awesome. Well, we're going to take a quick break. Luke's going to finish his stirring, and then we're going to sample his take on the uh, gin old-fashioned, and uh, we'll be back in a second. All right. If you want to check out Black Button Distilling in person... You can take a tour of the distillery on Friday nights from 6 till 8 or Saturdays from 9 a.m. till 4 p.m. Their tasting room is located at 85 Railroad Street at the Public Market. The tasting room itself is open Tuesday and Wednesday, 12 to 6, Thursday and Friday, 12 to 9, and Saturday from 9 till 5. They serve craft cocktails, spirit flights, beer and wine are also available. Go check it out over on Railroad Street near the Public Market. All right, and we're back. Uh, Luke is just starting to finish off the uh, finish off the cocktails right now. He's cutting his uh, cutting his orange peels. And why don't you talk for a second about uh, orange peels and uh, getting the oils fresh? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you you see this commonly uh, at bars for an old fashioned. There's there's some different schools of thought here, and I'm gonna try and break that down. Uh, most commonly, I feel like you see bars muddle the orange peel or even orange and lemon peel uh, with the sugar and bitters. And while there's nothing wrong with that, sort of downside is to it, uh, the reason what you want from an orange peel is the oil. Mm. Uh, When you muddle it, you're actually muddling the pith, which is releasing some bitterness. You're also releasing a lot more orange oil. So again, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just not how I choose to do things. Um, I I would much rather uh, leave the bitterness from the pith out and just get a a little bit less of the orange oil. Uh, So for mine, again... It's just the sugar and bitters and just a splash of water that you're, you're muddling up. Then you add your spirit, your ice, and then what I'm going to do here at the end is uh, grab, grab a nice big fat orange peel. You know, cut off the biggest one you can and then fold it right over the top a couple times. Just get all the oil off you can and then go ahead and hit the edge of the glass with the orange peel. What that's going to do is leave a little bit of oil on it so when you go to smell it, there's a nice release of orange oil on the top there. There's one for you, Jason. Thank you. Mmm. Zesty. 
And for you, sir. And thank you. Absolutely. And just gonna do one more. Forget about me. <laughs> and there we go. Nice. Cheers, gentlemen. Oh, cheers. Nice. Thank you. I mean, the orange is big. It's big on the nose, that's for sure. Yeah, it's going to be really heavy on the nose, especially for the first couple sips. And that's that's something I, I commonly think of of old fashions and other spiritist classics in this way. Negroni is another example. Um, whereas the first couple sips should be a little bit more inviting. Uh, you want some brightness in there because it hasn't diluted that much. Uh, you know, in 10 minutes from now, we still have these drinks, maybe. You're going to notice there's a lot less orange on it, but it also is a little bit more quaffable because there's a lot more dilution happening. There's more water in it. Um, so the, the drink, while the flavor profile changes, the approachability remains about the same. And nice. Really... I mean, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a very specific drink, obviously. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I really like how mainly what you're tasting in there is barrel-aged gin. There's a little bit of sugar in there to soften it. You have the bitters in there to add some complexity. Obviously, the orange oil. But ultimately, this is barrel-aged gin dressed up. <clears throat> and one of the interesting things, I mean, Luke, you were talking about that dilution. Uh, we do almost all of our spirits at 84 proof rather than the industry minimum, which would be 80 proof. Mm-hmm. Part of the reason for that is it gives you that much longer in the drink uh, before that dilution has really gone too far. Because as we all know, with any good, uh, whether it's a good steak or a good drink, you know, at the beginning, it's a little hot. In the middle, it's just about right. And then towards the end, you know, you're wishing it had gone a little longer. And so that, that beefing the spirit up lets it ride that middle ground for a little bit longer. That's always the goal. Yeah, absolutely. Any any cocktail you make, no matter how well or poorly made, there there is there is a, a life to that. It's it's not, uh, while beer and wine might change in the glass over time, it's, it's, it's not nearly as dramatic as it is of cocktails. That's really the nature of cocktails is that they, they change after a couple minutes. Hmm. Yeah, and especially especially when you do still have ice in the glass, you're getting dilution. And even when you don't, I mean, from cold to from cold to warm, it can change very different. Exactly. Very drastically. Exactly. And a lot of the a lot of uh, the aromatics that are released from shaking a drink have about ninety seconds to two minutes of life. So a lot of cocktail bars, even really before the drink gets to you, a lot of the aromatics have died off on top. Interesting. So I mean I like the I like the thought about the about the proofing as well. And you talked about, you know, 10 months in the barrels. Um, was that a balance that, how did that balance come into play with, you know, how long it stayed in there? Truly terrifying. <laughs> uh, so when we originally made the barrel-aged gin, uh, we did it with some of our five-gallon speed barrels that we did the little barrel bourbon in. And we made a fantastic barrel-aged gin in just about three weeks. And, uh, you know, there's just a lot of surface area with those barrels. And the and it was, you know, three weeks in, like, the middle of July, so it was just a big, honking, uh, you know, busy time for the barrels. And um, and what was interesting is that when we made the barrel-aged gin in the full-size barrels, uh, it was actually pretty good at about, like, four or five weeks. But we got busy, and one thing led to another, and the barrels just kind of got left to the side. And, and after about a month, we, you know, two months, we uh, we went to harvest them and we decided to taste them. Like, literally, we're standing above the tank. Like, oh, we should taste this. And it tasted awful. Oh. I mean, it wasn't even, like, it, w- it wasn't gin. It wasn't barrel-aged gin. It was just, like, weak, muddy vodka. Ooh. It was not good. And uh, and we're really scratching our heads here. And we're like, oh, man, I mean, we were, we were ready to harvest this product and... And now it's like no good. Um, well, I guess we'll just let it kind of hang out. I mean, 
and there's no point in throwing it out. You never know what time might give it. And what we hadn't really given a lot of thought to was that we had put it in in the fall, and then the weather had gotten colder. And so a lot of the, um, a lot of the flavor had gotten sucked up you know, into the barrel and was stuck there. And it wasn't until the following summer when we started to move into those hot days and cold nights that the, that the gin really started to take on a lot of its color, a lot of its flavor, um, and ultimately we were able to harvest it in late summer uh, for release in the fall. So the 10 months was a, you know, a, a large portion of that was just through the Rochester winter. The barrels aren't moving a lot in the Rochester winter. They're just, they're just taking time. They're off-gassing some of their more volatile compounds. They're just kind of mellowing out in there. And then come the summer where we have those super hot, humid days, now all of a sudden we're working through that whiskey and, nice. and gin in this case. <clears throat> it's, I love that fact that it, the, all the gin flavors got absorbed into the barrel and you get this generic spirit until it, it, until it gets back. a chance to come back out. Yeah, they That's, came back out. And yeah. it really does. I mean, you get, you get gin. Even in the cocktail, the gin still comes through. Yeah. And, and something cool I didn't expect from the barrel age is actually brings out the juniper a little bit more. Our uh, citrus forward gin is, is famously low juniper. Uh, it's, it's, uh, we're trying to go for different notes in there. Um, but unexpectedly, 10 months in oak really brought out uh, the juniper flavors in the gin. Yeah, which I, I think... also get a lot more cinnamon. Yeah. I mean, there's a little bit of cinnamon in our recipe, but I get a lot more of it. Yeah, it really, it really took some of the more subtle <laughs> flavors and just made them bigger. Yeah, which it's it's great to have a product that comes from the same from the same base, but it acts completely differently. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's the beauty of, of spirits and cocktails in nature. I think is is the uh, the variations. You know? Nice. Well, I mean, as we're as we're enjoying our um, our gin old fashions here, so you have some uh, some other interesting stuff to talk about gin. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, we kind of uh, we kind of fast forwarded to our uh, to our barrel aged gin, which is a good thing because mm-hmm. I wanted to start drinking. Um, but we were talking a bit about the history of gin in Geneva, mm-hmm. uh, especially in England. Uh, uh, listeners and, and yourself may have heard of the gin craze. Uh, this is a this is a period in history where the liquor uh, consumption in England was so bad it was actually destroying the, the fabric of society. It's actually very commonly compared to the uh, the crack and cocaine epidemic of the 1980s in America. It's amazing the hysteria that came that comes from that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and uh, as as quickly as as gin became popular in in England, uh, it, its detractors began to rise. Uh, one of the most notable uh, was a man by the name of Daniel Defoe, uh, who wrote a book uh, by the name of Robinson Crusoe. Little very book. popular. L- little yeah, book you may, may have heard of it. Yeah, you yes. might have read it when you were younger. Yeah. <laughs> and he, I, I want to read this quote. Uh, uh, he was quoted as saying, uh, the distillers have found a way to hit the palate of the poor by their new fashioned compound waters called Geneva, so that the common people seem not to value the French brandy as usual and to not even desire it. Wow. So he's he's really he's painting the poor as a victim of gin. Yeah, there, he's, he's a bit of know? a classist douchebag. Is exactly. kind of what he was. Exactly. Like <laughs> we've discussed the the problems that hard alcohol caused were the fact that it was much more alcoholic and consumed in the same quality, quantities and was much more impure. Sure. So this doesn't apply exclusively to gin, but gin was painted as this poor man's ruin. You know, why why won't they drink fr- fancy French brandy like the yeah. rest of us? You know, so so you see uh you see already where this picture is getting painted. Uh, also at, at home, you should Google uh, William Howe's print Gin Lane and Beer Street. 
Um, definitely worth looking up. I actually brought a picture of it for you to look at, Chris. <laughs> I don't, oh, nice. Can't share it with the folks at home. Uh, but it's definitely worth looking up. Now that that is a picture. I see. Yeah. I see a mother throwing a baby yeah, over baby's a guardrail. Falling off her. You got skeleton man in the corner next to her. It's that's fantastic. You know, it's it's just it's I'm, chaos. You know, it is it is that is a beautiful picture of hysteria about you know poor people enjoying themselves. Exactly. Exactly. And this is this is how it was painted. And and the uh, I don't I don't have a picture of it with me, but the companion piece Beer Street. Just imagine the opposite of that picture. Everybody's drinking in the streets, but they're very happy. You right. know, you can tell they have productive lives. They're good. So the message here is that liquor, specifically gin, is the devil. Uh, not drinking. <laughs> it's just it's just uh, hard liquor, you know? Yeah. Um, or, I mean, brandy's fine, but gin. <laughs> yeah. And and it's sort of the, the side effect of, of this posturing. Um, during this time, uh, we hadn't quite gotten to London Dry, the gin that most people know and love today. Um what we had was was English variations on Geneva, uh, which sort of slowly became this weird subcategory called Old Tom Gin. Um, there's some popular brands out there. Uh, Hammond's makes a very good one. Ransom makes a very good one. They're nothing like each other uh, because there's no real style of, of Old Tom Gin. It was just really thought of this, this uh, bridge gap between uh, Geneva and modern-day London Dry. Well, modern-day London Dry became about, uh, about because... We'd improved our distillation techniques a little bit. We were making cleaner spirits, cleaner tasting. Uh, so they, they made London Dry, which is, you know, a lot more similar uh, to vodka was back then. Uh, just very clean, not a lot. It's hard to find uh, impurities in there, um, or rather hard to cover them up. Uh, mm-hmm. So this gin kind of became the gin of the upper class because it was, frankly, safer to drink. Um, and that's sort of how Old Tom and Geneva got pushed on the back burner up until nerds like me started reading old cocktail recipe books. They're like, no, we need specifically the spirit from, you know, 1892. Otherwise, it's not right. Yeah. Otherwise, I mean, what's the point? Yes, yes. <laughs> we can't be nerds about it. Yeah. I don't want to do it. What are we doing? So, well, that's really interesting. I mean, obviously, gin has a lot of rich history. And, you know, you guys are, you know, bringing gin to different dimensions. And I, I appreciate that. Thank you with, for with, the, that. with the barrel aged and the citrus, your lilac and your and your garden. That's it's all different ways you can tackle a spirit with so much history. It's that's uh it's really interesting. So when it comes to when it comes to black button, you know, is there anything else about the gin we really want to highlight? Just so we're gonna keep making some weird different kinds. Uh we've got some new equipment coming in. We uh we've actually been building a vacuum still. Awesome. Uh, where we will be able to distill things at below uh, pressure and thus at very low temperatures. Uh, we've got a test still that'll be coming in in the spring, so we'll be able to make smaller batches and get a little weirder. Um, so yeah, we've we've got some exciting things coming up in 2017, and uh, hopefully a few of them will hit and be a hit, and uh, people will enjoy them. So we'll keep you updated. That sounds fantastic. So let's uh, let's put it our uh, black button plugs. Where can people find black button distilling? Uh, we're in most of your. Uh, we're in all the reputable liquor stores in town. <laughs> I like uh, that, and all of the best bars. Um, but you also can come on down to Railroad Street. We're at eighty-five Railroad Street, right next to Rohrbach Brewing Company at the Public Market. Uh, open uh, during the week as well as Saturdays, nine to five. Be happy to taste people on what we make, show them how we make it, and serve them a cocktail. Sounds good. And uh, Luca, social media for Black Button. Sorry, uh, social media for Black Button. How do we how do we find it on social media? We are on uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram uh, at BlackButton85. Beautiful. 
And um, my social media is uh, Food About Town on Facebook and at Stromy on Twitter and Instagram. Guys, thanks so much. This was a uh, this is a blast, and this is our first episode of the Black Button Podcast. First yeah. of many. Yeah, thank awesome. you very much, guys. Thanks for coming over. This was uh, this is fantastic. Thank Cheers. You. See you.